Oh, what a joy it is to see the promises of God displayed in the body of Christ and to uh, remember in word and sacrament the fact that he is faithful. He is faithful. We want to look at that together and the truth and the reality of that as we look, turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. Galatians chapter 5. We'll be looking at a handful of verses in this wonderful epistle from the Apostle Paul. As we continue in our series for Freedom Set Free, the title of this series came from the very verses that we will read this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And just as a reminder, when we started this series, I emphasized this and noted it last week, but I stir you up by way of reminder again this morning. That one of the reasons that we are renewing our own heart and life before Christ and the call of what it means to be a Christian and a member of a local congregation at the beginning of 2020 and doing it around the theme of freedom is that this theme of freedom is so widely misunderstood in our own day and time. Uh, that is true in the world at large as to what it means to be free and how we define it. But it's also true within the body of Christ. Very often confusion over what it means to be free in Christ or what kind of freedom have we gained in Christ or what does it mean to live free in Christ are questions that many Christians ask and, and some Christians have answered and I believe in many cases there is confusion and error around the way we have defined and understood this notion of freedom. We maybe of all people, as those uh, here situated in uh, North America, many of us raised within its uh, context, within its confines, um, often have the, um, uh, the great blessing, of course, to be raised uh, in a country where um, there are freedoms and where many freedoms are respected and honored and given to its citizenry, but, but also where freedom is thrown around like a tagline, so quickly and easily, it's often been collapsed into biblical categories and a kind of almost syncretism or a mixing between biblical categories around what freedom looks like and what, what it means to be in the, the, the land of the free have kind of been brought together. And we want to we be we want to parse those, and we've been parsing that in the midst of this series, separating those two out and saying, really, what does the text tell us? What does the Bible tell us about what it means to live freely as believers in Christ? And our prayer as a congregation is that the mark of Christian freedom, as biblically defined, would become increasingly true of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church as we enter into 2020. And as we focus our attention together today, not on worship as we did our first week, not on discipleship as we did in our second week, but now on community. What does it mean to have relationships that are marked by the freedom that is found for us in Christ Jesus? And what does it mean to minister and serve from a place of freedom so that that ministry comes from a heart of freedom and it begets a spirit of freedom? within the life of the congregation. Well, we want to pray to that end and seek the Lord's face for just that very purpose. So with that in mind, I want to look with you at Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll drop down to verses 13 and 14, and then in the context of our sermon, we'll spend a little time unpacking this section uh, in, in 
uh, the letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we take a few minutes now, spending time in your word, unpacking it, seeking to both understand it and for it to understand us, for it to read us and to be received into our hearts transformatively. We would ask, Lord, that as we give our attention in just that way, that you would give your attention to us in it. For apart from you, we can do nothing. Unless you come and build the house, we labor in vain. We would be blind, we would be deceived, and we would be lost in this word if it were not for the power of your Holy Spirit bringing it to life and changing us by it. And so see us now, hands open, ready to receive a gift from this, your word. Come and move in our midst. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the most uh, well-known theological volumes that came out of the 16th century, the time of the Reformation, was a commentary uh, by the great Martin Luther. Uh, Many of you know that he wrote a commentary on the very letter that we're studying this morning, Galatians. It was one of his favorite letters because of its theme of Freedom being the focus of its teaching, and in fact, the section that we're in, arguably a summary of the whole of the letter that the Apostle Paul has actually written uh, here uh, to the church at Galatia. Uh, Luther loved this letter because he was a man who knew what it was like to be enslaved. Not enslaved in the solitary confinement or behind bars in any external way, but he knew what it was like to have a soul that was ensnared. He knew what it was like to be trapped, trapped within himself, trapped within his own sin. And he knew what it was like to try to live religiously in order to try to get out of that trap, to reach certain benchmarks or achievements of of both religious belief and practice, and in so doing, somehow break free from the shackles that he found himself to be under. And And Luther knew, maybe more and better than anyone, uh, the devastation, the frustration, the despair that comes from being in that place. And so he committed great attention to writing a commentary, a wonderful commentary on the letter of Galatians. I commend it highly to you. Uh, In one section on his letter um, to, um, on his commentary on the letter of Galatians, uh, the, uh, Luther gives to us what we might call the paradox that's sort of situated here in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, listen to what Luther says. He says, A Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. And a Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing duty 
to everyone. Now, if you're hearing me in that, you might be saying to yourself, why did you like that quote, Nate? Because as I hear that quote from you, it sounds like you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. At one level, you're saying totally free. We're not servants in any respect. We owe nothing, as it were, to anyone. And in another level, we are a dutiful servant in every respect, owing duty to everyone. Which is it? And of course, you know the great, important theological answer to that. Yes. It is both of those things. And right here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 13 and 14 in this section, the Apostle Paul is actually setting forward that reality. What is it like to be totally free from anyone at one level and then totally enslaved in service to everyone at another level? And in both of those, to be expressing and experiencing the true freedom that is ours in Christ. What would that mean? How do we get there? Well, let's pursue that together as we look at, look at the text together. I want to look at this passage of Scripture with you in three different ways this morning. I want to look first at the reality of gospel freedom. I want to look secondly at two threats to our gospel freedom. And thirdly, I want to look at the life of gospel freedom. I want to look at the reality of gospel freedom, two threats to gospel freedom, and thirdly, the life of gospel freedom. And I think all of these relate to where I hope to spend really the lion's share of our time, which is speaking about ministry and loving service to others. Ministry and loving service to others. Well, I want to start with this reality of gospel freedom because that's where the text starts. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, notice how Paul introduces this section of the letter. For freedom, Christ has set us free, or it could be translated, for freedom, Christ freed you. For freedom, Christ freed you. Now, in saying it that way, the Apostle Paul is saying freedom is actually the instrument that Christ has produced. He's used freedom as a means by which to bring about freedom, but it's also the end for which the Christian life is to be lived. For freedom, he has set you free. So he's not set you free for no reason. He's actually given you a path to walk in. There's a purpose to the freedom that's there. Now, one of the purposes is what we looked at last week was that in love to the Lord Jesus Christ, we would obey his commands and we would find his commands to be our happy choice as we sang together last week together because his commands, when we are in the love of Christ, when we recognize our position in Christ, his commands are not burdensome. They are indeed our pathways of love and joy. They are according to the design for which he has made us. They are in keeping with the nature of the design of the world and even of our own souls. And we recognized that together last week together. But here he's saying that for freedom also includes, as you see in verses 13 and 14, relationships. Particular kinds of relationships and a serving mentality that is born of love towards those who are around you. In verse 13, he's essentially saying the same thing in different language. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Notice the language here of calling. That's the for freedom section. You are called to this. Freedom has a calling. For you are called to freedom. And that freedom is going to take you somewhere. And the question that has been, we've been asking is, where does the freedom of Christ actually take us? Where is it leading us? Where does it want us to go? How do we walk in it? 
Well, I think in order to get started, we have to look at the reality of gospel freedom. And in some ways, we have to actually remind ourselves of where we've been. And maybe for those of you who have not been with us, this will be um, helpful. And for those of you who've been with us, maybe a good reminder uh, so that we can, we can walk this passage out in the way that the Lord would be leading us in it. What does it mean to be free in Christ? Well, here's one of the things that we have said in the previous weeks. To be free in Christ means that we have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, as is offered in the gospel. And thus, the record of our sin and its guilt and its penalty has been utterly removed from our lives. Christ Jesus has received the penalty on our behalf. He is our substitute. He is the one who went to the cross on our behalf. The record of sin that was ours was placed on him. And that record that was ours has now been utterly removed. And also... His righteousness, all of the merits of what he did in his perfect obedience to his Lord and in receiving the full weight of the punishment for our sin, his righteousness has been charged to our account. So we are righteous in Christ. The sin has been removed and the righteousness is ours. So that's, that's the beginning place is to say you're free from the bondage of sin and its penalty. Now here's the second thing. We've said not only are you free from the penalty of sin, but he has, also broke, he has also broken the power of sin in you. He has not just freed you from the penalty of sin, he has also broken the power of sin in you, which means that you're not, now, you're not enslaved to that sin like you once were, to the lust of the flesh and of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He now has given you the principle of life, the Holy Spirit, and in that change as he'll say later in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit are born. Character begins to change. We become, big theological word, we begin to start being sanctified. We start actually growing into what he has already made us to be. He's already saved us and justified us. Now we're growing sanctified into what he has already made us to be. And so this idea that the penalty of sin has been removed, but also the power of sin has been dethroned, and the life of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel is now within us, we are now new creatures in Christ being changed from one degree of glory unto the next. Now that is a beautiful news. That is what the gospel would, that's what the scripture would call good news or gospel. It's exactly what Jesus Christ has come to give to us. In fact, you might remember when he first opened up the scroll in Nazareth and sat down to preach, he read from Isaiah 61. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. These are the words that he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what we're saying as we enter in on this passage for freedom set free and a bit of a reminder of where we've been. Is that now no longer is the penalty of sin needing to be assuaged because Jesus has already paid for it. And the power of sin has begun to be broken uh, in our life. And we can now actually choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to make acts of righteousness and produce good works. Works that the Lord is working in us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's, that's free. That's good news. That's joyous. Now as the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, they're losing sight of this. 
They're losing sight of this good news. In fact, you can see it there in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, why is Paul being so strong in his imperative there? Well, he knows what's going on in the church at Galatia. He knows that there is a threat to gospel freedom that's afoot. And the people of Galatia are beginning to believe a lie about what's included in the good news. The first threat to gospel freedom, as Paul alludes to it here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, is the threat of legalism. It's the threat of legalism. This was the real problem that Paul was addressing in Galatia. Now, how did they fall into legalism and what is legalism. Well, false teachers, first of all, had slipped into Galatia. They had, in Paul's own words, bewitched. That's the language he uses back in Galatians 3. They had come under the spell of these false teachers. These teachers had said, listen, we are so glad to hear that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. That's necessary. Now, if you'll also be circumcised, then you'll be really secure in Christ. Your act will really be together. If you could just complete it all, then you'll really be on the right foot. Just begin to now, in a sense, as you trust in Christ, now go back and become a Jew. Go and take the old mark of the Old Testament of circumcision. Then you'll really be accepted and approved of before the, the Lord. Now you can see what they're doing in that message. They're smuggling good works into the good news. They're saying something more than Christ is needed for your acceptance before God. Something more than Christ. There is a gospel plus that is being described here in the book of Galatians. And the apostle Paul says, listen, when that comes at you, that legalism comes at you, stand firm against it. Don't go back to that yoke of slavery. Because Paul knows that as soon as you allow good works to slip into the good news, the good news ceases to be good news. Why is that the case? Well, it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it, if you just reflect and think on it a bit. If Christ's work is not finished in the fullest sense of that word so much that we have nothing else to rely on but what he has done to make us acceptable for God and there's still a margin however big the margin is there's still a margin that we must do to make ourselves approved of and accepted in the Lord the question that begins to rise is how much do I need to do how much do I know is enough when am I sure it's complete the question of uncertainty begins to rise. Anxiety about assurance, about standing with the Lord begins to come. And then all of a sudden, the peace like a river that comes in the freedom of Christ is now in the midst of a storm-tossed storm soul. You begin to realize that if any of your salvation rests on you, we're in trouble. And the Apostle Paul says that's a slavery. You know why that's a slavery? It's a slavery because what happens when you start thinking part of your salvation depends on you? What do you start thinking about? Where does your mind go? To you. To you. And whenever your mind is thinking about you and committed to you and worrying about you, you become enslaved. You become enslaved. You're on the hamster wheel of works righteousness. Being sure that you have done enough 
to make yourself acceptable to the Lord. That's the first of the threats is legalism. The adding into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, adding in works with regards to our acceptance before Almighty God. Now, this was not the only problem that the Apostle Paul addresses in Galatia, though it was the main problem. There was a second threat, and it's a second threat that takes hold of a lot of us in this room, just like, just like legalism does. As we find ourselves sometimes really, really kind of, he loves me, he loves me not in relationship with the Lord because we're thinking about how well we're doing. And we're not primarily focused on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we fall into a yoke of slavery. But there's a second threat that's there to our gospel freedom. And the second threat is license. The second threat is license. This is, if, you can, if we can put it this way, the other side of the ditch. If gospel freedom is the road, legalism is one side of the ditch, and the other side of the ditch is libertinism or license. Uh, the other side of the ditch says something like this. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, my salvation is not based on me keeping the law anymore. I'm fully righteous in Christ. Therefore, the law has no continuing place in my life. I need to do no works. All we should do is, we looked at last week from Romans 6, I can just sin so that grace may abound. Paul says, no, that's not it either. Notice his concern here in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's what Paul's addressing here. Now, here's what's interesting. That word opportunity literally means a base of operations. He says, don't take the gospel and use the gospel as a base of operations to indulge yourself in sin. How many of you have been guilty of this like I have, where you have thought to yourself, oh, I really shouldn't do this. I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't think this. But, well, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. Guilty as charged. I thought it. I've acted on it. Lord, forgive me. Where we have actually used the gospel as an excuse for doing things that are sinful. We've used it as a base of operations by which to indulge the flesh. Now, when the Apostle Paul says flesh, don't get caught up on that. He's not saying your human flesh per se, though it might include sins of the flesh, of the physical body. He's using flesh, as he often does in his letters, in an ethical way. The flesh is that inclination, that sinful inclination within us that makes us always want to move towards thinking of ourselves rather than God or others. It's that power, almost operating principle within us that constantly turns in on itself. Timothy George puts it this way. He says, flesh refers to the center of human pride and self-willing. It arises from the false assumption that life is found in one's own power and of living for oneself rather than God. Now, here's what's interesting if we just pause there for a second. If gospel freedom is the road, living in the freedom of what Christ has done, in both removing the penalty of our sin and dethroning the power of sin in our lives, the two ditches that he's identified legalism focuses on self with regards to good works, trying to earn a standing with the Lord. The second one is a focus on self who doesn't care about the law and is totally focused on indulging the flesh. But notice what's true about both of them. They focus on self. They focus on self. 
Both of them make the self the center of the world. It could be works with regards to standing in the Lord or, it, or with regards to your standing with the Lord. Or it could be a rejection of the law where you focus on yourself to just glut yourself with the pleasures of the world. In both cases, the focus is on self. So though there are two threats, there's really only one problem. There's the idolatry of the self. There's the idolatry of the self. Whenever we turn our lives into about our lives, everything goes awry. I was uh, reading this last year, a book by the title of Recovering by Leslie Jameson. It's an interesting read. Um, she's actually cataloging her own battle with addiction and alcohol and drug addiction specifically, and uh, wrestling with what it had done in, in her own life. And she catalogs at one point how she, as a straight-A student, getting into to, to all the right schools, disciplining herself in all the right ways to be able to accomplish the things that she was after, that she had these, this, this whole commitment in one area of her life that was almost legalistic, if we could put it that way, to its focus on self. But she had this other area of her life she could never get in control called addiction. From the first time that she took a sip of alcohol, she was down the rabbit hole into addiction. And she could maintain even parts of that addiction, even in high level of accomplishment and success in her life. But the more she continued to give to the addiction, the more it wanted from her. She said, I was in the cycle of desire, use, and repeat. She called it a cycle. Whether she was serving herself with her accomplishments or she was serving herself with her addiction and her comforts and escape, in both cases, she said what she knew as she was going to AA meetings, why the big book was sometimes referred to as the way out in AA, the first title was The Way Out. She asked herself, why do they call it The Way Out? And she said this. She said, they call it The Way Out because what you need is to get out of the claustrophobic crawl space of the self. What a vivid imagery. The, whether she was serving in this capacity highly successful, or whether she was wasting away in addiction, both of which she had tasted deeply, she recognized what we're noticing now is that she was locked away in the claustrophobic crawl space of the South. These are the two threats to gospel freedom. One looks like freedom. In the, in, the, in the world's definitions of the term, giving up to what you want, whenever you want it, without constraint, no one curbing your desires. We often define freedom that way. One looks that way, but it ends up in a trap. And one that looks very disciplined and, and, and very noble, that even praiseworthy, even giving valedictorian speeches. This one, she's also saying, is a trap. Because at the center of both of these bypaths, these ditches, is self. And so that brings us finally to the third point, the life of gospel freedom. Now, if you'll see the Apostle Paul's words here, he's saying, listen, for freedom you've been set free, stand firm to not go into a righteousness that's built on yourself, 
in law keeping. And also, don't use the gospel as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. Don't do either one of those bypaths. Instead, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That's what he says. Now, some of you may be saying, what? How in the world is that freedom? How is the life of freedom one that you're now saying and using the word service <laughs> as a means to describe the pathway uh, of freedom? How is that freedom? And again, it hinges on what's our definition? Are we defining it according to the things of the world, making your own choices? It's your time after all. It's your money. It's your life. You do with it whatever it is you wish. Don't let anybody else stand in your way. Or could it be that freedom is not choosing whatever it is you want or the ability to choose, but freedom is learning to choose rightly, to choose wisely, to, to choose according to the design that you've been made. Choosing according to how he's actually made you. How God the creator has designed you. When we begin to choose, the choices that we make are either incongruent with or, or in dissonance with the nature of what God has made us to be as human beings. Who are we? That, you see, the, the, definite, the question of identity rises when we begin to talk about freedom. Who are we? Only then could we know what, what freedom is. Only then could we know what freedom is. And then when we begin to look at the pages of Scripture, and we look all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, what do we read? We're made in the image of God. We're made after His likeness. We're made to display His character. We're made to serve according to the marching orders of design that he gave to us to be fruitful and multiply and subdue uh, the earth. Now, that fruitfulness, that multiplication, that subduing the earth, that, uh, that spreading of, of peace and shalom over the world is driven and motivated by love. Something other than a focus on self, by love. Love for the God who made you. Love for the things of which he has made. A desire to see the people and the things which the Lord has made come into their, their fullness. This, this spirit of love, this actually heart of love, is the opposite of self-centeredness. It's actually other-centeredness. We, we get a taste of this, don't we? The, the moment that we have a, have a child. Where all of a sudden... We can actually say things, think things, feel things, and mean things that say something like, I would give my life for this child. I, I love this child more than my own life. If I could take any of their pain, any of their suffering upon myself and that they would be free. We make statements like that as they're born and as they grow because it's in the very nature of what it means to be a parent to have those emotions described to the one the ones that the Lord has given to you as a gift with regards to children. That spirit is there. Well, it's not surprising that the Lord thinks that way about us. He thinks that way about us. You see, at the very heart of our salvation that we have 
that we have embraced that has been won for us in Christ is a salvation that is about love serving others. What is, what is the cross other than the fulfillment of the call of freedom in this passage? Now let's think about this for a minute. Who is the most, well, who is the freest being in all of the world? God is. God is the freest being in all the world. He has the most power. He has everything at his disposal. He can do anything that he wants. And in fact, the psalmist tells us that he sits in the heavens and he does whatever it is that he pleases. He operates according to his wishes, according to his will. No one can stay his hand. He is utterly sovereign. And yet, what do we know about him? In his freedom, he never acts outside of his nature. His freedom is within his character. Because he knows, just as we know, that when we operate outside of what it is that we've been designed to be, we begin to break down. We, we begin to lose freedom. Freedoms begin to be taken from us. Now, not at first. That first time that we got drunk, that first time that we got high, that first time we, we did this or we did that, it felt free. But the second time, the third time, and then we woke up the next morning. And we realized that this is doing something to me. Deconstruction is happening here. I'm operating not according to the boundaries and the parameters of my nature. And it's having an effect upon me physically. But it even has an effect upon us personally and relationally. I mean, this is the nature of a loving relationship. I mean, you've probably thought about this at the fundamental at the fundamental level of this text, this idea of relationship is placed serving one another through love. Think about a loving relationship. If you've ever been in a loving relationship with someone, you know that that relationship will place demands upon you that will restrict your individual freedoms. It's the very nature of a loving relationship to do so. I remember learning this as a, as a young married man. You know, leaving from class, leaving from work and deciding, you know what, I'm going to go out with the guys for a little while. And I go out with the guys for a little while. Two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, who knows, long time. And I get a call from my wife, where are you? Well, I decided to go out with the guys. Did it occur to you to call me and let me know where it is that you've gone? No, but I'm sensing it should have. <laughs> I'm a quick learner. And in the moments that that happens, and a lot more of those kinds of moments over the course of married life, remind me that I am not free individually in relationship in this way with the one that I love. That I actually have to lay aside an element of freedom in order to experience the freedom in loving relationship. Now, how does that translate to the gospel? Well, perfectly. Because when you have been designed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been designed by God as an image bearer, you've been redeemed by his blood, 
And he has bought you and he has made you totally free from the penalty of sin. He has broken the power of reigning sin in your life. You're to grow in the freedom of that righteousness that he's called you to. It will mean a loss of individual freedoms as you come in deeper and closer contact with the one that you love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what begins to happen? You begin to love the things that he loves. And there ain't nothing he loves more than his people. There ain't nothing he loves more than his people. And all of a sudden, as your heart gets closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're shaped more after the affections of the Lord Jesus Christ, you increasingly say, it's not my time. It's not my money. It's not my energy. It's not my things. It's all about Christ. It's all about his mission. It's all about his people. Because as I am learning to receive his love, which was ministry of love serving others on the cross, as I receive that love, that love begins to shape me according to his affections and desires, and Christ-likeness begins to show up in me. I am freely bound in loving ministry to serve others. That's what begins to happen. This is why at the end of our lives, we don't want to be the kind of people that ultimately have given our lives to the things that don't really matter, don't have eternal significance, and find ourselves having missed the real center of what Christ has called us to, the joy and the freedom that's made available to us in him, which is daily making the decision to lay down our lives for one another. I was reading again this week, had a little memory as I was making some preparation in David Hatchett Fisher's book called Liberty and Freedom. And one of the things that's really interesting about this book is that he defines these two words in ways that I think have often been lost on us. We think of them as almost just synonyms. And Fisher, as he goes back and does the work on the roots of these words and their use of these words, we find out they actually mean almost opposite things that work together. What do I mean? Liberty, coming from the Latin, literally means to be separated from or to become autonomous. Uh, to be on one's own, to be separated out from the group. To be free, to not be a slave, to not be owned by someone else. Freedom, however, is a word that actually etymologically is connected to the word friend. To have a friend. To have a close kin. To have someone that you love. To have someone that loves you. If I can put it this way, liberty means being unentangled. And freedom really means being entangled. <laughs> entangled in a love that's like a friend. You know, there's nothing more freeing than being in a loving relationship. And there's nothing more demanding than being in a loving relationship. And the freedom of those demands is the foundation of your intimacy and your joy in that relationship. What Fisher notes is that when you look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament as they're brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, they are a liberated people. They're separated out from Egypt, but they are a liberated people. They are joined together in the promises of God as his people. They are, a, they are friends. They are linked in kinship together. You know, that's the nature of the church. We have been called out of the world. 
We are separated out. We have been, we have been set at liberty, but we are, we are free in Christ. We are a people who have been united and joined together in service to Christ and in service to one another. That, that boundness is actually the kind of freedom that God has called us to. It is the right kind of freedom for the ones that he has saved. Do you know why you don't fare so well on your own? Because you were never meant to be on your own. You were made for loving and intimate relationship where sacrifice and service is given. It's why in those moments when we get past, as it were, the flesh that resists that service and we go and serve another without agenda, without, without expectation of payback, simply with love and with sacrifice, and the reward is in the service and in the love of the other, and we walk away and our hearts are filled with joy and freedom and we think to ourselves, more of that is what I need in my life, and you're exactly right. And you'll forget it next time an opportunity to serve comes around. When an opportunity to serve comes, to be able to lay your life down for another, buy up that opportunity and act quickly. And as you go, prayerfully, because you will find wind in the sails on the other end of that sacrifice and service, you will find something of a resurrection at the end of that cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was love. It was joy. It was the living within the design for which we have been made. The very picture of who Christ is for us. When you see an opportunity to serve, what happens in your mind and heart? What should happen? And what would happen if you saw Christ in the midst of that opportunity? By God's grace, let's become those people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we would ask you now, to inflame our hearts with the call of what it means to be free in Christ, that we might serve one another in love. Bless us with this spirit now and bear us up, calling us deeper into that freedom and deeper into that sacrifice. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.